Well, I hope you all had a great week. It's been a pretty busy news week. A few things that I want to go over. First of all, we're looking at this fantastic picture here, and this is vaping. Uh, the past week, maybe the past month, seems like every health official, every news person, all of a sudden decided that vaping needed to be in focus, and it needs to be investigated, and certain things need to be banned. I'm going to be talking about this. This is something that has just been in the news so much this week. We have President Trump here also mentioning that he wants to ban certain flavors of, of vaping. So uh, we'll be talking a little bit about this. The next big news of course, is Apple. They had their event. This is a, a huge company that a lot of div investors and growth investors and everybody in between invest in. And what I'm going to be talking about is not so much this this event from a consumer perspective, but from an investor perspective, specifically the Apple TV Plus part. Because I think that by far, out of all the things that they announced they're going to release, that the Apple TV Plus has the most impact on investors and the future of the company. So I'll be explaining what Apple is going to do in order to use their giant moat, their giant uh, scale to be able to push this service so that everybody signs up for it. And then the last bit of news, uh, AT&T. This is a company that a lot of retail investors, that means a lot of individual investors like uh, me and everybody else listening to this show, they like this company. Lots of individuals invest in this company, not too many institutions. But now we have a situation where the CEO of AT&T is leaving the company, uh, Randall Stevenson, and he set it up in a certain way. And right as he's stepping out of the door, we have an activist investor who is somebody that has a lot of money, represents an institution or a hedge fund. They buy a large chunk of the company and then they try to persuade leadership and different things to go in a different direction. So they're stirring the pot. We're going to see what's happening with AT&T and the demands that these activist investors are putting on the leadership of AT&T, the things that they're wanting them to do. So we'll be looking at that as well. Um, and then, of course, we have the portfolio update. I'll just give you a rundown real quick of how my portfolio is doing for the week. And of course, answering a lot of your questions, concerns, and criticisms, I'll be responding to that as well. So let's jump into the first news item before I get into my portfolio update here. This is an interview from just the 12th, so just a couple days ago, and this is the CEO of the Cleveland Clinic. Well, we have seen patients, and what is really, really alarming is here at the Cleveland Clinic, we have seen young patients who required a long stay in an intensive care unit because of the severity of their lung disease. It is really too early to tell what is exactly causing it, but what we do know is that all of those cases were related to the relatively recent onset of vaping. So it is definitely a harmful habit. Our lungs are meant to breathe in uh, clean air. Anything that is not clean air is harmful for lungs. Vaping is a very, very harmful habit. Well, that doesn't sound like particularly good news, but on top of this and other interviews where lots of health officials have gone on TV and expressed the same type of concern, we have article after article after article just repeating the same type of things. And one thing, just on a side note here, try to find an article about vaping that doesn't have some big vape cloud in the header picture. So I challenge you to go out and try to find one of them. They're few and far between, believe me. Uh, they, they love this type of imagery for it. Now, of course, this is good for the media to come out. Anything that is shocking or newsworthy, they try to push as much as possible. But really, the, the fact that vaping, uh, you know, shares similarities to smoking, I don't think is really news to that many people. 
Uh, at least in my case, this is something I predicted for a long time ago. People that have watched my videos will know that I said it's going to follow similar path to cigarettes where it comes out. A lot of people use it and then all the studies and that type of stuff start catching up with it. And there's a lot of concerns. And then you have people that are wanting to pass new laws and regulations for it. Lawmakers are pressing for tighter regulations amid the outbreak. They're calling it an outbreak. I don't really know if I agree with the term outbreak here. It seems like the, the media tries to use that term really lightly. And then, like I mentioned, we have President Trump tweeting out that he wants to ban certain flavors of vaping. I'm not joking. He wants to ban all the ones that might appeal to kids. I think he walked this back, actually. So this is earlier in the week, and then I don't think he's actually going to follow through with this one. But banning certain flavors of, of vaping, I think, is pretty dumb and, and counterproductive. It reminds me of the same type of thing as when New York banned 64-ounce soda drinks People can just buy two 32-ounce drinks. Uh, if we want to eat unhealthy, if we want to have uh, different junk foods or eat fast foods, or if we want to vape certain flavors of vaping, I, I think people are going to find a way to do that. Banning it, I feel like, makes it more popular. Anybody that has kids knows when you tell them not to do something, if the big government is telling you not to do something that you want to do, a lot of times that just makes, makes people do it more. Overall, I don't think that this is actually a big concern to Juul in particular, which is the the e-cigarette company that's under fire the most with all these regulations and all this talk. I don't think it's as big of a deal as the media is trying to portray this. I think a lot of this is priced in. It's just something that investors should have expected. Now, um, aside from this, I know that I've been wrapped into this whole debate about health. That's something that I mentioned is actually a side reason of why I don't invest in Philip Morris and Altria. These are the two biggest tobacco companies. They're two of the biggest dividend payers historically in the US. One reason that I don't invest into them is because of health. There's other reasons outside of that that are much bigger concerns to me as an investor. Now, we can look at a couple of them here. Look at the stock's performance over the past five years. This is from Philip Morris. Notice that over the past five years, it's actually gone down about 12.5%. If you look at Altria, same story. You can look at the past five-year period, and it's down about 2.95%. Now, this is during a time when the S&P 500 and the general stock market has gone up a tremendous amount. Why are these two companies struggling when the stock market's going up? The biggest concern to me is not the health risks or legislation. It's the fact that tobacco... The product that these two companies primarily sell is on an overall decline. There are less people buying tobacco products than there were 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 15 years ago. Overall, the amount of tobacco being sold in the U.S. has been on a steady decline for 15 years. The reason that these companies have year-over-year revenue growth, a lot of people point to that. Well, they're making more money. So what's the problem? It's because they're charging more money to their existing customers. The customer base that they have they're just saying you need to pay more for the product. And that's how they're increasing their year-over-year revenue growth. Now, obviously, from an investment standpoint, I don't think that that's sustainable. My concern with these companies is that I'm not entirely convinced on their future growth plans. I think that the reason that they're merging together is to create optimism about the stock. I think that their bull case of, of these new expansion plans, of going into vaping, going into marijuana, it's just very unproven. It's an unproven business model. We don't know how vaping will work out long term. Maybe it will work for these companies, and maybe they'll be able to get large stakes in them and beat out the other competitors in that industry as well. But it's just not something I'm willing to put my money into. I like companies that just already have solid business plans. I like Apple. I like Costco. I like these companies that they have a solid business plan. It's shown to work everywhere that they're expanding. It's something that's already that's already going well. 
Um, for people that are investing in these companies, they're hoping that these future expansion plans will work out. That's what they're hoping, is that they're going to be able to get a stake in these marijuana companies, that they're going to be able to get a stake in these vaping companies, that that will liven the, the future growth plans of these stocks. Another concern I have about them, just to wrap this whole segment up, is Altria has a payout ratio of 80%, meaning 80% of the net income they make, so income after all their expenses, is going to their dividend payment. We have Philip Morris with a 95.9% payout ratio. So Philip Morris has over 90% of their net income going to their dividend payment. So these companies, they need to keep increasing that income to make their shareholders happy. They want to keep increasing their dividend and paying out shareholders that way, which they know the majority of shareholders are holding them because of their dividend. They have to keep making more money. So that's going to create a lot of pressure. They have to have these future growth plans work out. It's not a stock where they have a 30% or 20% payout ratio where they have a lot of wiggle room to be able to pay dividends for years to come without really increasing their net revenue. So there's some pressure for them that they have to have these future plans work out. I'll keep giving an update on this news, what happens with legislation, what happens with these two companies. I think it's interesting to follow them, even though they aren't specifically held in my portfolio. Moving on from that, of course, this last week we had the Apple event and they went through all their new amazing products that they're making. And of course, they released everything. I'm going to go ahead and focus on one part of it. I'll play a little clip here. Next up, let's talk about Apple TV+. Plus. So this is, of course, Tim Cook. He's going and showing off Apple TV+. Plus. The reason that I think this one is particularly more important for the company, for uh, investors for the future of Apple is because, I mean, they're going into gaming. They're, they are making new products that are the same type of things. They're iteratively better than the previous versions. But all of that, again, is it's kind of baked into the cake. We know that Apple is going to continually improve their iPhones. Nothing about the iPhone has changed too drastically in the past five versions. It's just continually incrementally gotten a little bit better. But Apple TV Plus is a brand new service. They're going into the content creation business. They're competing with all the other big companies. And this is something that could lead to a brand new path of growth for the company, unlike their iPhones and their devices that they already sell. So this is huge news. A lot is riding on this with Apple. And we'll go ahead and take a look at what they already have in terms of content and the new content that they released at this event. Our mission for Apple TV Plus is to bring you the best original stories from the most creative minds in television and film. This summer, we released three trailers for a few of our premier originals, like For All Mankind, an innovative reimagination of the space race, and Dickinson, starring Haley Steinfeld, a coming-of-age story about Emily Dickinson told in a completely modern way, and The Morning Show with its blockbuster cast starring Reese Witherspoon, Steve Carell, and Jennifer Aniston in her first TV series since Friends. So right there, you see they, they already have some big names. We have Jennifer Aniston, Steve Carell. They, they can get any actors that they want. It, Apple right now has the latest estimates like $237 billion worth of cash. Just to give you an idea of how much cash they have, they can spend virtually limitless amounts of money on content production. So they do have an advantage there. They have very deep pockets. They have $100 billion more in cash than what the market cap is for Netflix. Just to give you an idea 
of how much money Apple has to work with. So they might be spending a lot on this, but it's not anything in compared to how much money they're able to spend. And they just released a trailer for C on the 10th. This is another big series that they're wanting people to get excited about. It's starring Jason Momoa. It's about a civilization that has lost vision, that they literally can't see anything. Uh, It looks interesting. I'll play a little bit of the trailer here. Centuries from now, almost all humans have lost the ability to see. Some say sight was taken from them by God. I have to keep you safe. The moment has come. It's astonishing how the smallest moment can change an entire world. Now, I think that this looks great. looks like a very high-budget, well-produced, dark, gritty, violent TV series. I think it's going to be really entertaining. And I mean, this is is a double-edged sword of all these streaming services coming out. We have Apple that's... They're going to come out with some great series that people are going to want to watch. And Disney's going to come out with some great series people are going to want to watch. They have Netflix. We have Amazon Prime that's doing this super high-budget Lord of the Rings series that they're going to be doing. All these different services and... If you want to watch one or two shows in each of them, that's where things can start to add up. I did a poll on my Twitter. If you guys haven't followed me on Twitter, I'm on Twitter. But I did a poll asking, what streaming services do you think will be the most successful over the next five years? I left out HBO. That's just because it only allows me to have four different options. But it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think that Disney has an advantage that it has distinguished itself from the competition that it's specifically targeting more more things that the whole family can enjoy rather than the sphere of like HBO, Netflix, uh, Apple TV, this kind of greedy adult content that a lot of people enjoy that as well, but it's just they're all competing amongst each other between that content. So I think Disney does have an advantage. I would also rate them number one in potentials of growth for their streaming service. So my question with all of this, with the the whole Apple streaming service, is Apple doesn't just release singular products. That's not how their business plan works. I did a video that talks about uh, the Apple card and how they don't really need to make money with any real individual products that they have. That all of them work together to keep people staked down and they're not able to get out of the grasp of Apple. Meaning, if you buy an iPhone... Instantly, you'll get iMessage and you'll start using iMessage with friends and get accustomed to that. That makes it harder to go to Android because when you go to Android, no longer you're in the loop of that iMessage. Well, when you buy a MacBook, now you can iMessage off of your MacBook. That's one stake in the ground that keeps you grounded to Apple. And they just have a way of making all these products work together. Their Apple card. If you get the Apple credit card, all of a sudden you you have purchases. They might be monthly purchases linked to that card. And now if you want to cancel... And now if you want to switch over to Android, you go, oh, wait, I have the Apple card. I should probably just stay with Apple because it will become inconvenient for me to move over to Android. So all these things work in conjunction to to keep people in this ecosystem. And my question was, what are they doing here? with the Apple TV Plus service to leverage all the existing products and that whole moat they have to leverage their scale in order to make it so that they can sell their TV service because they're going to use that advantage. They're going to use this moat that they develop. Apple never just singularly releases a product without using their existing products to advantage the new one. 
Now, the answer is on this press release from Apple. They This came out the same day, where if I scroll down, they have something here where they say, for $4.99 a month, which is the price point of Apple TV+, Plus, that's extremely cheap. Almost like it's too cheap to pass up. Five bucks a month to get all this content, right? So right away, that's a still. Um, and they know that they don't need to make money on this right now. They just want to round up lots of lots of users. But listen to this part. This is the kicker. This is where they're going to get tens of millions of customers right away, guaranteed. Starting today, customers who purchase any iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, iPad Touch, or Mac, literally like anything that they sell, can enjoy one year of Apple TV Plus for free. An entire year for free. So the, anybody that buys any of their devices... They're going to give you Apple TV Plus for free, not for a month or for three months or whatever, for an entire year. So you're so accustomed to using it that it's just like second nature. You've had it for an entire year. And by that time, you're likely to just resign with it. On top of this, I don't, this isn't really confirmed, but I think it's going to function the same way that most of Apple products do, where their services like Apple Music, they just function better with their own products. It'll work better with the Apple TV device. It'll work better on your iPad and your, your MacBook than it will on other devices. So they will use their ecosystem to prop up this service to make it so that they get a lot more subscribers and that those subscribers, again, they have a difficult time saying no to it and, and going to a different service. So as a shareholder of Apple, there is nothing concerning to me about at least this event, everything that they released. I think that they're going to do just fine. I think that the people running this company are very smart with the direction they're going. Apple TV Plus, I think, is going to do really good. Now, the last bit of news that I want to mention is AT&T. This is a company that's a longtime fan favorite of individual investors that are dividend investors. It, it struggled a little bit in recent years, like the past decade, but the dividend's been safe. It's been paying a dividend the entire time, and they're not in trouble of slashing it anytime soon. Other companies like Verizon has sped ahead of AT&T, but this has been a company that a lot of people really like. It doesn't have a lot of institutional big-name investors. Well, recently, this stock has been on a bit of a tear. If I look at the past six months here... It's up 23% in just the past month where you're up like 12% on this company. So AT&T has done really good recently. And part of that is because of the situation they're in. They have an activist investor, which people that aren't familiar with that, um, it's when there's like a, a hedge fund or somebody that represents a large capital group. They take out a large stake in the company. This activist investor, this young guy right here, Jesse Cohen, he bought 1% of AT&T's $3.2 billion because he sees a lot of potential in it. He thinks that he can change the direction of it, that he can attract more institutional investors and bring a lot more money into it. And of course, when he comes in there and he buys 1% of a company like AT&T and he has all these ideas and plans to attract other investors and make the company more thin and nimble and make it more uh, profitable, that usually will make the stock go up. And that's what it's done. In the past month, it's really gone up quite a bit. Now, a lot of the stuff that he wants done with the company, I actually agree with. It says that Elliott Management, which is the name of the hedge fund that Jesse runs, issued a 23-page report that publicly questioned the logic of AT&T's $49 billion takeover of DirecTV in 2015, shortly before cord cutting accelerated, and its $81 billion deal last year to buy Time Warner, home of HBO and Warner Brothers, only to replace almost all of his experienced entertainment bosses. Now, out of this criticism here so he's criticizing two different decisions AT&T's done one is to buy DirecTV in 2015 the other is to buy Time Warner the home of HBO 
Uh, I really am only critical of the DirecTV part. Kind of easy to say now. DirecTV would probably, that portion of the company would probably sell for about half of what AT&T originally bought it for. So even though they had a price tag of $49 billion when they purchased it, it'd probably sell for a little over $20 billion now if they could find any if they could find any buyers. But this was obviously a bad decision. Um, as far as the HBO and Time Warner part, I don't, I don't have any problem with that deal. I think that that's an... I don't have any problem with that deal. I think the HBO and Time Warner were a really good asset for them to pick up. So, but regardless, Elliot, you know, he's going through and he wants them to sell off the media parts of their company. He wants them to focus specifically on telecom and hopefully that will have the results that it's had with Verizon. That's pretty much the summarized message of what he's wanting to do with AT&T. But where does that lead the company as of now? Well, the big issue with all of this is, is we have right here, Randall Stevenson. He's the current CEO, the one that's leaving the company. And this is his whole tenure. This is everything that he's worked for since 2007 when he started on the company. He's taken it the direction that it is right now. And then we have an investor that represents a lot of money wanting to entirely change the direction back and undo everything that he's worked for. So I think there's going to be a lot of tension here. I think that we'll see some proxy fights and different things over what's going on with the company. So it's it's bound to get shaken up a little bit. Both of them though, both of these investors though, they want the stock to go up. I mean, he owns a huge amount of it. He's the CEO of it. Both of them want the stock to go up with the company. They don't want to get the company damaged. The question is whether this fight will lead to a good outcome or whether it will be something that will damage the company and make the stock suffer. Okay, well, let's move on from that and take a quick look at the portfolio. I'll do a quick update on this. So first of all, I want to jump to my YouTube page here. This is the community tab. You'll see this show up in your YouTube feed if you subscribe to the channel. But I did a poll, which is just like a questionnaire. It had two options that you could select on this. And the question was, do you like hearing from YouTubers that share their portfolio value or would you rather they not share their personal portfolio value? Very straightforward. And one of the options was, yes, I like to see their portfolio value. The other option was, no, I would rather not see their portfolio value. The response was very much uh, overwhelming in one direction. 97% said yes, they like to see the portfolio value. 3% said no, they would not like to see the portfolio value. And that's with 2,400 votes. So this wasn't like 80 people voted, very small sample size. 2,400, that's a significant sample size right there. Now, I will say that this kind of surprised me, this uh, outcome. I thought that it might be more weighted towards uh, the portfolio value because after all, this is my channel. This feed primarily shows to my subscribers. So I was thinking, yeah, there's going to be some biases there, that the people that already like my content and what I'm doing are going to vote that they want it to stay similar, to stay that way, right? 97% is really substantial. That is a majority of people like seeing it. Now, the reason I asked this question, this isn't a uh, slight or a jab at any other YouTubers that choose to show whatever information they want to show, right? Some people have their reasons for not showing the portfolio value. That's fine. This wasn't directed at anyone specifically or anything like that. So that's not what prompted this. It was honestly just a question of whether it's a good thing to show this on screen and whether other people thought it was a valuable thing. Showing my portfolio value, I think as a investing content creator, gives me a distinct disadvantage to other YouTubers that don't show their portfolio values because I have it all out there. I have my gains and my losses and anything in between out there. And that's up for criticism where other people that aren't showing their portfolio value, if theirs goes down, the market goes down and they enter into the negative or they have sweeping losses, none of their viewers need to know about that. They can continue on going and giving their advice and giving off the impression that everything is going fantastic when it's really not because they're protected from that. So from that perspective, 
showing you this number, the gains and my portfolio value, I think gives me a distinct disadvantage because I don't have direct control over my outcome here. You know, this relies on the market and how the, the US economy and the market is doing in general. So if this goes down and it enters into the bread, that's something that could be looked on negatively, could give me criticism, all that type of thing. Regardless, I just throw this out there because if I'm giving investing advice and, and showing people my way of thinking and how I thought through this portfolio and the reasons that I invest in it, I want to also show people how it's going, what's going on with it. I, I realize that as a content creator, this, this brings upon risk. You know, I don't have direct control over it. I am going to show this portfolio if it does enter into the red. If I start losing money and things go bad, I'm not going to all of a sudden not show my portfolio value. I'll let you guys know how it's going, what companies have failed and the reasons why and all that good stuff. So I plan on continue doing this. I will say I was ready. If this poll was just flipped, if it was 2,400 votes and 97% of people said, you know what, this is just uh, flexing your portfolio or this is just boastful, you know, there's no, this isn't offering value, it's just stroking your own ego, that type of thing. If there is a lot of comments like that, I was fully prepared to discontinue showing my portfolio value and creating content outside of that. So that's kind of where this poll was. The way it stands right now, obviously a lot of people seem to enjoy this aspect of the videos, so it's going to remain. The other thing I wanted to quickly mention was for some people, these numbers, $55,000 is a total value of my portfolio. $6,000 of this 55 is gains. The rest is money that I've contributed. And for a lot of people, this number is a really big number. For some people, this number is nothing. It's their daily swing of their portfolio. And again, that seems crazy for people like like a lot of the viewers and me, you know, trying to build up our, our portfolios. We're starting out here. But really, 55000 that's a lot of the daily swings some people have in their portfolios. Don't get strung up about the number here. If you're just starting off and your budget isn't putting in $200 a month, I promise you it will add up. When I look back, I started with a $100 deposit. From there, it was just grinding, just putting money in over and over and over again. Just putting a lot of effort into other things to contribute to this, but I didn't even start YouTube until this portfolio was right about here until early this year, and you could see the growth of it before then. That came from putting aside other things that I could have spent this money on instead trying to build up this number. Now let's jump actually into the performance here. So if I go to the one week view here, just the last five days, up a smidge at 0.23%. If I go to the month view here, this is pretty exciting. Go here, uh, total gain is 1400. Earned dividends though, $224. In the last 30 days, I've earned $224. That's pretty awesome. I remember, like I said, my first deposit into this portfolio was $100. So being able to have purchased these companies that are now generating revenue, they're sharing it with their shareholders as uh, owners of these companies, and being able to reinvest that into companies that have fallen in price is pretty awesome. $224, that's money that my portfolio has given me that's going to be paid out. It'll enter in this cash balance here, and then I'm going to be able to invest that back into this portfolio, and it will automatically get funneled into the most underweight holdings, which right now it looks like that's bonds. So this $224 here, so this $224 here, it's going to end up going into this bonds pie because as you can see, this month bonds went down. And that's the magic about this is when you have this automatic weighting system, Whatever has fallen in price, that's where all the earned dividends go. That's where all the future cash flow goes. So you're continually buying companies and, and different holdings that have fallen in price. I think that's pretty cool. But that gives you a little update on the portfolio. I'll keep you guys up to date with it. Let's go ahead and answer some questions here. All right, so the first question is from Deb. She says, hey, Joseph, thank you for all the content. I recently set a goal of having $500 of passive income. 
um, by the end of 2021. This isn't financial independence for me, but it's definitely a big step. I've been looking for strategies and YouTube recommended your channel, specifically episode 32. I subscribed, then went back and watched all of your videos, and I'm glad I have. I caught up last week, and I'll have to admit, it's weird not having a backlog of videos. Um, I can relate to that. If I find content that I enjoy and I, you know, I find out about a channel and I look and it has like 20 or 30 different episodes that you can go to. It's fun to be able to just queue them up and listen to them on your drive. But then I know that feeling when you realize that you're all caught up and you have to wait like a week or three or four days or whatever for a new video. So sorry about that. I'll try to come out with videos more often. I have a family and other things going on, so I'm doing what I can here. Anyway, she says, my first question is about taxes. I'm seriously considering putting money into two vehicles like you, a Roth and an individual account. Roth is appealing since it grows tax-free but it's also not very liquid. Do you get a yearly statement, like a 1099 I get from my savings account from M1 Finance? My taxes are intentionally not complicated, so I wouldn't want to hire an accountant just to figure out taxes for this dividend growth account. Um, With taxes, yes, first of all, I would recommend absolutely doing a Roth before you put money into the taxable account. But to answer your part about the, the taxes, Yes, M1 at the end of the year, they'll give you the the tax forms and it will be really long. Like mine was like, you know, 40 or 50 pages long just because of all the trades that are done. I wasn't about to go and enter in all these trades manually. I wasn't going to do that. I didn't use a tax accountant to do my taxes. I did what's called a tax summary. It took maybe one or two hours of me going over it and, and figuring it out before I was like, okay, this is how it makes sense. And I entered it in. It looked like it was correct afterwards. I double-checked everything and and submitted it and haven't had any issues. So I'm not a tax professional. It's not advice. Uh, I would say if it's really confusing, then at least talk to somebody that knows what they're they're talking about specifically with taxes. So that's not my specialty. That's just uh, what I did. My experience, I did the tax summary, and that seemed to work out just fine for me. My taxes took me a couple hours to do. It wasn't anything that was particularly difficult. Moving on, you said... Before watching your shows, I knew who Warren Buffett was, but had no idea how he made his money. Your channel has sparked an interest in finance in general. I even recently bought The Intelligent Investor. So uh, that, I just will point out, makes me really happy to hear that this channel has sparked an interest in finance in general. You know, finance is supposed to be a boring subject. I don't think that it is. When I got interested in it five years ago, I thought that learning about this whole subject and, and getting to know finance in particular and business and how the, all of this aspect works... I thought it was more entertaining than politics. The fact that it sparked an interest in it, I think is a really awesome thing. Now, moving on, you say, I haven't grasped a lot of it so far, but I know Benjamin Graham believes in 25% bonds as a minimum. I know you get a lot of flack for being young yet conservative. Have you read this book? Was this part of your conviction to keep 20% in bonds? I know you referenced an article and study in your main reason, but was curious if the book had influenced your decision also. Yeah, so what I do typically with my investing decisions is I have a a lot of different investors that I look up to. There's the Warren Buffetts, the Charlie Mungers, the Peter Lynch, the Howard Marks, uh, Benjamin Graham. There's all these different ones that I look at what they've done, the decisions they've made, their reasons for making it, and then I incorporate that into my own decisions. So now Benjamin Graham in particular obviously is in favor of having a good portion of your portfolio in bonds. But on the other end of the spectrum, we have Peter Lynch, who hates bonds. In his book, he dedicated an entire chapter just trying to dissuade people from investing anything into bonds. That's how much he hates them. So I like Benjamin Graham, but I also like Peter Lynch. And where does that leave me? Uh, They both have their reasons for it. Benjamin Graham's is that uh, bonds 
drastically reduce the volatility in your portfolio while only minimally reducing the gains. And so it's a very mathematical approach to it. Uh, he says that it helps keep people invested because if you have giant swings in your portfolio, it's just it's just harder to stay invested with that. Peter Lynch looks at it completely differently. He says that uh, it's easy to know why bonds don't perform as well as stocks because when a company does really well, a shareholder will enjoy the benefits of that. They'll be able to enjoy in the success of the company. But when a company does really well as a bondholder, you don't share in any of that success. As a bondholder, all you do is you get paid back the same interest rate you were before, no matter how good the company's doing. But if the company does poorly, the bondholder gets punished just like the shareholder. So Peter Lynch looks at it and says, there's not as much upside with bonds, but it shares the same downside. That's his view on it. And Again, I respect that view as well. So where does that leave me? I just tend to look at the Vanguard studies on this. It shows that having like 20% of your portfolio on bonds minimally impacts the performance over a long period of time. You might shave off like a percentage or two of gains over 20 years, but it drastically impacts the volatility by reducing the volatility. And I thought, well, my type of personality, I want this to be a fun thing for the next 20 years. I'm okay shaving off 1% or 2% gains to have a smoother ride on the way. Now, if you're different than me, that's fine. That's why I'm explaining my reasoning. If you think, well, I don't care if I have a really volatile ride for the next 20 years, I, you know, it doesn't bother me at all, then I would remove 100% of the bonds. I'd go into 100% equities. You'll likely make more money over the next 20 years than you would holding bonds, but you're going to have harsher ups and downs. During the next recession, your portfolio will probably suffer quite a bit more and it'll take longer to rebound. But again, over a long enough period of time, you'll probably come out on top. So that comes down to personality. You're going to have to look at that and be the judge for yourself uh, what you think is is best. But those are the two different arguments there that you can look at. Peter Lynch is totally against them. Benjamin Graham is in favor of them. I would look at both of their arguments and then you can, can see who you agree with. The next question is from Robert. He says, hello, Joseph. I want you to know that I appreciate the time and energy that you put into your videos. Good material and advice is constructed well. Good job. Uh, Thank you for that, Robert. That's kind of you. He says, my thoughts are on the stock that you may still be holding. I don't know, but annual capital management, um, I think it means uh, annually capital management, NLY, concerns me. Perhaps I'm looking at its value to the portfolio wrong and it's on an extreme sale right now. While it has a nice dividend of $1 annual pay forward and now valued at around $8.50 per share, bringing its yield to around 12%, it has been bumpy over the years and not growing for some time now. Another concern. Last time it was trading, this low was in the early 2000s, almost 20 years ago. I would like to know your thoughts when you're able. I feel like I'm missing the reason you may hold NLI. But looking and not seeing the dividend growth company, I just don't see your reason. Thanks again for all you do. You're right, Robert. Uh, It's cool that you noticed this because it shows that you're actually looking at the companies that you're buying and, and trying to see how it works. So you've pointed this out, and it's true. NLI is not a dividend growth company. Dividend growth describes the majority of my portfolio. Most of the companies that you're going to find in my portfolio, about 95% of them are dividend growth. There's three that aren't, and bonds are not dividend growth either. Overall, if I was going to generalize my entire investing strategy, it's not really a dividend investing strategy. Dividends have become kind of this cult keyword where it's all about the dividend. And I wouldn't really say that describes my investing strategy. My investing strategy is more that I want everything that I invest in to residually be paying me money. Now, bonds do that through interest, but the companies I invest in, I want them to be doing that through their excess cash. So whatever that's called, if it's called a dividend, I'll take it. If they're paying me their excess cash that they don't need to grow the company to reinvest and to run it, they're paying me just like they are any other employee, any other shareholder. 
I like that. And I like the specific way that they do that through dividends. So that's where dividends come in. But the whole strategy isn't based around dividends alone. This company specifically, NLI is not a dividend growth company because it doesn't really grow the dividend. It's just a high yielding company. It's always going to have its dividend around nine to like 12%. It's always going to be somewhere around there. They cut it all the time. They, they bump it up all the time. They just pay as much as they can in dividends. The performance of this company, since you mentioned the year 2000, if you look at a graph here, the performance of it is phenomenal. If you had invested $10,000 into this company in the year 2000 with dividends reinvested, you would have $94,000. Opposed to the general stock market, you would have $29,000. That's what dividends reinvested back into it. So this company has done very well with this high yield strategy. Um, I'm not... I'm not worried if it cuts its dividends. I will not sell this company if it cuts its dividends because it doesn't grow its dividends. It just pays out as much cash flow as possible. Other companies that I hold that are similar to this, where they're either mortgage REITs or these finance companies that use a lot of leverage and they just pay out as much cash flow as they have, is not only NOI, but we have NRZ is another one, an Emory, and then we have Maine, which is a financial company that, again, it just it's not a dividend grower. It just pays out as much as it can. So you'll see similar dividend history charts with them. All the other companies I own, I believe, are traditional dividend growth companies aside from those three. Jason says, hey, Joseph, thank you for your channel. It's been very helpful. I wanted to ask you about dealing with market anxiety, specifically how to manage it when the market is up. With this dividend growth strategy, I feel better when the market is down. I picture my strategy like collecting baseball cards or comic books. I want the price to be low so I can get more shares and my yield goes up when the prices are down. When the market spikes, then I start getting anxious, noticing urges to stop putting money in and even thoughts of selling and looking for something with more value. I'm staying with dollar cost averaging no matter what, but find it interesting that my anxiety and fear increases when the markets are high and more relieved when low. Any thoughts on that? Not sure if it's a common risk tolerance kind of anxiety. Thanks again. So Jason, my thoughts on this... Uh, I think that it's warranted to have anxiety about putting money in the market right now. I mean, you can go through and list off the laundry list of, of concerns. I could list off the yield curve. Do we pass this indicator of an upcoming recession? I could go through and, and look at all the people predicting a recession in 2020. Um, we can look at the fact that we're going to have a general election here soon. And a lot of the candidates are running on these platforms with big financial policies that who knows how that's really going to affect the economy, right? So there's risks and, and different concerns about that as well. Now, having said all of that, pick any five-year period, any 10-year period throughout history, and look at the major headlines during those time periods. Are those positive headlines? I noted this in one of the episodes uh, that Peter Lynch looked at one year of investing where every single headline, all the biggest headlines were negative. They were about the upcoming collapse of the economy, all these different horrible things. And the next year was like the best year in returns in like 10 years in the stock market. So having your money outside of the market during that year, you would have missed out on the best gains in a 10-year period. That's what I look at. When I look at it, I don't know what the future holds. I don't know if we're going to enter into a recession next year or anything like that. But the money that I'm putting into my portfolio is buying me shares in these companies. I don't think that all these companies are going to go bankrupt in the next recession. I think that they're very strong cash flow heavy companies that will weather through recession and provide me cash flow during it. So I'm not really too concerned, even if my portfolio does drop 50%. I will say that if you're having ongoing anxiety about investing, that probably means that you're not managing your personal risk in your investments that well. So you just need to tailor it more conservative. Uh, that's what I've done with the 20% bonds and the holdings that I have. I have zero anxiety with my portfolio. It doesn't concern me in the slightest. So if I did have anxiety, I would be changing things around and manipulating my portfolio to where I get it to something I'm comfortable with. 
Well, that's it for me. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't, like the video, all that good stuff. I do read all the comments on the video, so if you leave a comment, I'll see it. Or you can email me anytime, josephcarlsonshow at gmail.com if you want your question on the show. So I'll catch you guys next time.